You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. How you doing, Bobo? Good, Cliff. How are you? I'm doing all right. How's your day today? Anything exciting happen? Besides getting a chemical spill, not much. A chemical spill. Do you want to give us a brief, uh, you know, update on that or what, what's going on? Or is it just... I'm um, cleaning out like this, cleaning out a trash house. We're going to flip. Uh-huh. And I was carrying a box full of pesticides and, I don't know, like paint thinner and like all this crap and the bottom of the box gave way and it fell and some chemicals splashed all over me. Yeah, did you happen to wash yourself off appropriately, or are you still like wearing that? No, I, I, I changed. That's why I was like two minutes late tonight. I was just rinsing off out under the hose. Okay, okay. Well, that's good. You, yeah, you may want to do that a couple more times if you know that's some pretty caustic stuff. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess on to um, brighter topics. Uh, I've got an exciting guest for you tonight. Um, you already know this gentleman, of course, from our trip to Australia. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Ray Doherty, who's one of the leading Yowie investigators down under in Australia. I don't know how long he's been doing this, but uh, um, we can find all that out in a few minutes. Of course, you remember Ray from the Finding Bigfoot episode, Bobes, right? He was in that house where the car got rocked and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And it was his spot, actually, that uh, we did that night investigation where I got that interaction between the Yowie. We heard that the, the and the tree pushed down. And that was a crazy night. And it was his spot that he brought us to. So that uh, was awesome. It was amazing. And of course, I've kept in contact with Ray through the years. And, you know, off and on, we send each other some stuff. And he's, he's a very active researcher. He's very smart and articulate. He's very scientific. And it is my pleasure to introduce everybody listening to Bigfoot and Beyond right now to Ray Doherty from Australia. Ray, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, Cliff. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How you going, Bobes? I'm good, man. How are you? Well, better than you avoiding a chemical spillable. <laughs> well, well, Ray, you know, I, I, um, you know, this is called Bigfoot and Beyond, and of course, Yowie is the uh, Australian Bigfoot, if you want to call it that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering how familiar a lot of our listeners are with the Yowie. So, for for the people out there who listen to our podcast who are not familiar with the Yowie, I, I'd like to start the interview today with like kind of do this chronologically, I guess. Because here, here in the United States, of course, um, you, you can go back as far as you want. The native people who lived here long before the Europeans came over, or the Russians for that matter, um, they they all know about Sasquatches. And, and so can you kind of give us the lowdown on some of the aboriginal history of the Yowie in Australia? Well, that's an interesting thing, depending who you really speak to. Um, many of the aboriginal nations were separate individual nations. In fact, over 500 were living in the one country at the same time. Um, and there's five distinct major groups which of Aboriginal people, which is the uh, Northern Australian, um, sort of Central Eastern, um, Southern Australian, Central Australian, and Western Australian. And they've all got different stories, different tales from whether it be North Queensland to where I live in South Queensland to New South Wales, and they have different relationships with them. 
in fact, generally, that when you guys came here, it was widely accepted that the Indigenous people came to Australia around about 45, 50,000 years ago. Um, a lot of the university, the University of Queensland, has been doing a lot of work here. And they have found now they're pretty sure that it's as far back as at least 90 to 100,000 years that they've been here. So it's pretty much almost double now because they found a new dating technique with some stone tools. And what that really does is broadens out the timeline even further in the relationship that a lot of Indigenous communities have with these creatures. Uh, some Indigenous communities will tell you that the creatures were already here when, when, when well, they're, sorry, they're, they're, uh, folklore uh, will tell you that these creatures were already here when they got here. Others say that they were companions. Others look at them as a supernatural being that um, that if you do something wrong, you're going to get a visit from the hairy man. And others, and some fear them. Some have, there are some stories of having been preyed on by them. So the relationship is different, but it at least stretches back 100,000 years. What I'm hearing, though, is that there's a rich and varied history of the Yowie. So it's not some sort of modern creation or mythology, like urban myth. Um, just like an, any natural member of the landscape, you know, any other animal, um, the, the stories of them are here and have persisted for generations and millennia, really. In my view, they are as much as part of each other as the land is if that makes sense. So Australian Aboriginal people are very heavily connected to the land and the Yowie or the what they call the Duragal, the Quinkin, the Hairy Man uh, is as much connected to them as they are to the land and they're all connected to each other. So they're all, it's more of a, in many ways, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, and I don't know a lot about the indigenous people in Australia. I think Bobo actually knows quite a bit more than I do um, about the history and whatnot. But um, uh, can you speak to to um, the accuracy of oral tradition and the ways that the, the Australian Aboriginal people um, carry that on? From the best of my knowledge, from the, what I've studied and read and been told, the two ways where stories were passed down, and that were through what they call song lines, which was uh, drawings or stories passed down along certain family lines and long lines of, of clans and groups and mobs. And that goes back thousands upon thousands of years, but as well as oral traditions. Uh, obviously, we know about the dream time and you know, the, the land of Gondwana and the time before, which is what very uh, prominent in their culture uh, across the whole country. But it's, it's to them as accurate as for us it would be reading a book that's 200 years old. Right, and, and, it and it tends to be historically accurate as well, um, from what I understand. I know that uh, in America, I think anthropologists have done studies that the oral tradition remains pretty accurate to about 200 or so years. But uh, um, I thought there was something about, maybe maybe Bobo can uh, chime in on this, um, about uh, song paths or walking paths? or yeah, song What am I lines. thinking of? Song, song lines. lines. Is that what that is? Yeah, song lines. Okay, so now, that's not common knowledge here in the U.S. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm not, you're not, not aber you're not a, you're not a no, native I'm person. Not, I understand. No, but. I'm not that um, okay with it. Insofar as that, it's a tradition and a way of which they uh, pass stories down and information. So, for example, 
if one uh, family unit, let's say, was traveling from A to B, and along the way they would go to the caves and other people would write before them where the water is, where's the best place for food, where's the best place for uh, bush tuckers, where's the best place to camp. And they would be written on cave walls and in the form of what they call a song line. And then also there's other song lines on which stories are passed down. It's hard to explain from my perspective, but uh, that's my best understanding of them. Well, it's a better understanding than what I have. So I appreciate uh, that, that illumination. I hope it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, now uh, moving, moving forward chronologically, I suppose, um, hmm. uh, in the United States with the Sasquatch, we have a, a, um, quite a few historical uh, accounts of, yeah, of, of Sasquatches, mostly yeah. in the form of historical newspaper reports as like yep. the, the, the European populations were pushing to the inland, you know, the inside of uh, North America. Yeah. Does that exist in Australia as well with the Yowie? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's an incredible history. The Australian National Library has digitized all the newspapers as far back as they can um, from when white settlement occurred in Australia. And I think maybe early 1800s, very early 1800s, um, maybe about 1810. But I've got a project I'm doing at the moment with researching those stories and bringing them to life in an audio recording with those stories. But there's thousands of them thousands of them literally uh, and I was just remarking to someone the other day just about how how integrated the Yowie sightings were with first settlers and it, in many communities it was just a part of life that those things lived over here that, because what's really interesting is that some of the early pioneers treated them like they were another form of indigenous person They some called them a beast, some thought of they were like a, looked like a gorilla but a lot just treated them like another member of a, an indigenous community that lived traditionally in the bush Australia took a weird place to be with well, you guys got platypuses and all kinds of weird kangaroos. So when they heard about a gorilla on two legs, it was from what I, my research when I'm reading old newspaper reports on Australia and stuff, which has been years since I really got into it. Yeah, researching that was I remember seeing some reports from the early 1830s, and there it was, people weren't like incredulous. It was just like, yeah, these things are here, and they're natural fauna. They're not. We don't have a specimen, but they're they're totally real. And I noticed about like late eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, the white people started saying, "Oh, it's just all rumor." Yeah, it seemed to change at a certain point, around about the 50, 1850s, 1860s, um, Again, depending which region, uh, certainly the people in the city had that attitude. Uh, the people right. in the country in certain areas didn't. Um, but there's a one interesting story that I like where this um, uh, there was rumored to be this Yowie in this particular area. Um, they found logical explanation in the form of what they call owl, of, of owls, uh, doing the cries and the roars and whatnot, and they all put it down to the owl. And one school teacher was thrown off his horse and he fell over and he, and he died at a certain spot. And this rancher found him and he uh, said, look, the guy just, you know, horse was spooked probably by a snake and he fell over. Interestingly, six months later, the rancher was killed being thrown off his horse in the exact same spot. So that was an interesting story in terms of um, how uh, people can, on one hand, dismiss them and then just as you think that they're not real or just as you think that you'll never encounter one, up they pop. 
Do you think there was something uh, um, to uh, what, what can you attribute that sh- that shift in attitude to? Do you have any ideas what that might have been? Was if it was eighteen fifty, eighteen sixty, was it the discovery of the gorilla, I mean, or, or was it just the domestication of the people, or maybe people started living in larger cities at the time? What sort of sociological elements might be involved in that shift? I think you know the particular the eighteen hundreds that everything was being discovered for the first time. You know, a lot of things were being discovered. And we got to a point, um, society as a, a global society, that we got to the point around about them, you know, started getting towards the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. And we thought, uh, certainly the educated people did, thought that they were starting to know all they, all there was to know. There was no more else to learn. And if it didn't fit within their box, within their paradigm, it just didn't exist and it was ridiculous. And I think it was that sort of arrogance that probably caused a shift in society because people were a lot more trusting of authority figures, university lecturers, police, lawyers, judges, politicians. Um, and I think certainly uh, that that arrogance that was developed from learning and from all those discoveries that were being made at that time, uh, as I said, I think if it just didn't fit in that box and they just, they just boohooed it and it just sort of followed spread out throughout society, particularly in the cities. And then that sort of flowed in through to the country areas. That's, that's the only thing I can put it down to. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. One of the stories from down that area, and I think the guys may have told you that on the town of the town hall there, but um, one of the big stories was from that region, from the Byron area, if Byron down there, down near Fingal Heads, a bit further down, was that um, the indigenous people got pushed off the lands by the big Yowies coming down from the mountains. The, and they were at a sort of state of perpetual war for like 50 years. And it wasn't until the, the story goes that um, a white man and his wife helped them get their land back. And I can only suggest that it's because he had firearms probably. And then, of course, the Indigenous people were able to retake their land. And that's one of the stories from that area. You know, the, I went out of Byron. I went to that reserve behind Byron Bay. And they were, I, the, to a person, they all knew, they all had seen it. In 2008, were you aware of this? A dead Yowie washed up on the riverbank in 2008. Yeah, I've heard that story. There's about four of them getting around at all different parts of the country. But, yes, I've heard that one. Well, I went. To, I talked to the um, even the white biologist that was on that reserve doing some work. He saw it and he checked it out. And he said, "Yeah." He said he wanted to take pictures of it, and they would not let him. And if the body laid there for three days, wow! And then they came back one day and it was just gone. But it was there, like it had been in the water for a couple of weeks. It looked like it was kind of rotten. But they said it was about seven and a half foot and about four hundred and fifty, five hundred pounds. Wow. We have heard that that that's a story that gets around. It's a pretty famous one. But as I said, there are a couple of them. But um, even just December past, there's a story not far from that area, maybe about two hours down the road. Uh, one got hit by a car. And uh, the witnesses have gave their account to um, AYR, to Dean Harrison's team, um, gave their account. But there's never been any follow-up and from what we understand the body was there and then it was taken away by local emergency services and that was only December past. We get a lot of that stuff up here in the U.S. as well. We hear uh, 
you know, people taking bodies away after one gets hit by a car or, you know, any number of disasters. Even, there's a bunch of stuff um, after Mount St. Helens, so this big volcano here in the U.S. exploded. I hear stories about every three or four weeks in the shop, like black helicopters or black SUVs or, you know, that sort of stuff. And I always say, well, you know, maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. Um, and, you know, if, they, if somebody hit one in a car, um, if that was the beginning of all that, shouldn't there be damage to the car, for example, or hair striations in the dust or something like that? You would think, uh, unless you yeah. just wing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even if, well, if, well, you, if you wing it, would that be enough to kill them? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't think so. I, yeah, I wouldn't think so. Just Google the damage a kangaroo does to a car when you hit it. <laughs> right, uh, right. It's just those you know, four or five foot eastern grey. Mm-hmm. The biggest kangaroo I've seen was nine feet, and that was a big red up in North Queensland when I was a kid when I used to live there. Nine and feet. So there's going to be significant damage from anything that's seven foot and, you know, 300 kilos. Oh, yeah. Were you talking nine feet nose to tail or standing height? No, uh, that's usually about standing height for the big reds, between seven and nine foot tall, and this one was a big guy. I remember I was only like 15 years old. I was sitting at the back of our house and back then it was all bush, no scrub. Uh, now it's all houses. It's been developed. This is up in a place called Serena in North Queensland. And I just heard this, I heard these footsteps, just boom, 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 boom. And I just look up and I see this giant red thing. And I saw the back of it and I couldn't see it at first. And I just couldn't see. And then suddenly just out of the bush, literally 10 feet in front of me, this gigantic kangaroo just emerged. And I was terrified. I didn't move. But he came there every day at 3.30, every day. And I started, you know, occasionally throwing him a piece of bread and a few things. I wasn't – he came really close, took it out of my hand once, but I was never going to pat him. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought they didn't get over seven feet. I never even heard of one. No, they do. I've seen them. Wow. They get much, much bigger than seven feet. The more remote area you go, the more, you know, like up around Serena back then, he was big, gigantic. In fact, um, wasn't that long ago I got bailed up by, like I'm 6'4", and a couple of male eastern grees in this one particular area that I researched not far away um, is easily my height, and they're just greys. They're not even reds. Dang. I didn't know that either. But hey, you know what, Ray? Up here in the north, uh, one thing I always liked about Australia is that there's less big fauna down there. I mean, there's not much. I mean, I know you got some like camels that got loosed out there and stuff like that, but I mean, you don't have bears or giant elk or moose or other big. Um, we have um, big deer um, in terms of introduced animals. Big deer. But I was, was going to talk about. For up here, a big challenge for us is the vocalizations. There are so many animals in North America that could be a Bigfoot, similar sounding. What do you guys experience on there? Like, do you do you have any good audio recorders that we might be able to hear? And then also, what are the common animals down there that you guys have to discern? Is that a yowie or something else? What are the ones that are common? What are like people like if someone goes, "I got a yowie screaming outside my house." You go check it out. It turns out to be like a dingo or a bird. Uh, no, well. No, I mean, dingo howls are easy to to rule out because they're much more higher pitched and they're much a completely different frequency. Now, we uh, we get a lot of confusion with, with koala bears. 
because they're only little and they make some incredible noises. Um, we've also get some confusion with uh, owls and certain birds, and um, particularly, um, yeah, owls especially. And um, but mainly those those two are the the, the main big thing: uh, owls and owls and koala bears, especially in mating season. Um, occasionally. Uh, either a feral dog. See, we've got, we've got a very big problem here with feral dogs, feral cats, feral pigs, and feral deer, but particularly feral dogs. And feral dogs can sometimes, when they, if they decide to let out a few howls, can also confuse the issue. But, but really, it's night and day between when you hear a true recording, when you hear a real vocalization, and then the animal, and you play them side by side, there's, there's no real comparison, really. How do, how do your vocalizations compare when you play them side by side with a North American Sasquatch? I know... We got way more recordings than you guys do, but they're the same. So they, they have the variety of vocals, like high pitched and low pitched howls, and then like uh, oh, yeah. and well, we, all that stuff. Well, what I found with the guys I work with down here, we don't do the big long calls anymore. We're pretty sure that doesn't work. Um, we we have the opinion that's an alarm call, and that's what they call out to each other when they're you know letting them know something's up. We do, we impersonate fem- what we think to be female calls. When we learned this from gorillas and orangutans, um, a male is more likely to turn up if it hears a female call rather than a, another male alarm call. So we try the female calls, which is a much softer, softer and more, Oh, what's the word? It's the one. There's clearly a difference between them when you listen to them, but it's more of a haunting call. It's more of a low, um, very sort of call as opposed to the big howl. Are Yowies known to knock like they do in North America? You know, oh yeah, like, absolutely. Same thing. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, I know I, I was clapping back and forth with one, but that's a commonly reported thing as well. Yeah, tree knocks, um, yeah. rock clacks, mm-hmm. howls, calls, um, all pretty much exactly the same, pretty much identical. Are you of the opinion that the Sasquatch and the Australian Yowie are the same species, or what's your thoughts well, on that? i put it like this. If, if Sasquatch is a wolf then maybe the Yowie's a husky. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So same, really closely related. Like, kind of like uh, a North American black bear versus the Southeast Asian sun bear. Yeah. That's I think it's the same genus, but similar species. I mean, they live completely differently, though. That's the whole thing. The closest thing we've got in the U.S. to how they live here is what happens in Florida and down in Alabama and Louisiana, at least in my state, because my state is more like that weather. It's um, subtropical, and we have a lot of the same weather patterns. And so, when everything I see from you know from Florida, from Louisiana, it, it compares exactly with what we see here. Yeah, and and I know in North America, Sasquatches are so highly adaptable to a wide variety of habitats. Um, it, it was not shocking at all to find them living in the jungle-like environments you know, of Eastern Australia there. So. Yeah. The other difference is, is here, they will not live in a pine forest because pine trees are not indi- indigenous to Australia. They're imported. And they will, you, can only, you will always find them in the old-growth native forests 
They won't be in the pine forest. They may pass through a pine forest, but they won't live there. They will they will head for the old growth forests. And the other thing is particularly what we've noticed, particularly the research I've done over the last 15 years, they will spend a very large chunk of their time in trees and not just little trees. I'm talking some of these big, you know, 30, 40 metres up in a tree and they'll spend a lot of their time there. They do that to avoid bugs, to avoid detection, and so they can see everyone who's coming from a long way away, especially at night. And that's even the larger yaois, not just the smaller ones. Oh, yeah. The biggest one I saw, saw in a tree, which was the tree sitter that we photographed. Oh, actually, I've got this other photo of one. I have no idea who, how big he is, but I was 100 meters away across a ravine from him, and he's standing 30 meters on a tree, and he would easily have to be my size or bigger. And he's mm-hmm. just standing there looking at me. And so at least the ones that are six or seven foot can easily climb up. We've never seen them do it, but we've seen them up there. That's for sure. Right. Okay. Now, how many times have you seen one at this point? Seven times. Seven times? Wow. Yeah. And they've all been during daytime. Mm-hmm. And we've had mm-hmm. some other encounters where we haven't actually seen them. Um, but, you know, the, the funny great story, we were at that spot um, a couple of years later after you filmed a show there. And my son is six foot eight. And he and I went up there with uh, Ants and Nigel, two other friends of mine. And we were standing at the edge of this cliff looking over the, over the river. It was a dead night. And uh, Nigel was down walking a trail. Ants was sitting up here with a parabolic dish. And I was standing behind him and my son was standing behind us. And as I said, my son's 6'8". And he goes, will you stop it? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, just stop it. And I said, what are you talking? Who are you talking to? He goes, I'm talking to you. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he goes, will you stop breathing and wheezing down my neck? And I said, son, I'm standing in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) So one of those, these things had walked up up behind him and was breathing down his, down his neck. (laughs) Well, um, since you guys, uh, it sounds like you go out a fair amount. Um, what's your, do you have a routine that you follow when you go out there or, or maybe share with us some of the uh, techniques you utilize in the field? Like what's on your mind? What do you do out there? I very much try to take a scientific approach. Um, when I first started this a lot of years ago, I had no idea what these things were. And I'd had those couple of experiences. And then I sort of, you know, read as much as I could and talked to quite a few people that had been doing it for a while and trying to under get an understanding. And everything I, w- I did led towards ape. So I started studying as best as I could primatology. And I read every book and spoke to people like Ian Redman and Professor the late Professor Colin Groves at the Australian National University, who was one of the country's top primatologists, did a lot of work with the Billy Ape. And I tried, read every textbook I could find on gorilla habituation, orangutan habituation, and the sciences of it. So I got to really study and understand primatology very well. So my approach, I took 
was if I was studying a gorilla or, or habituating myself with a gorilla, so I would set up feeding stations. We would set up cameras and audio recorders around those feeding stations. And then we would have a, a data map and also Dr. Debbie Argue, she's a fellow in uh, paleoanthropology. She uh, taught me uh, and gave me a lot of great information about how to build a data map and data analysis of things such as, you know, if we find a tree break here, we find footprints there, we find... Um, uh, you know, uh, handprints here. We might find eaten food there, and we'd learnt. We've learnt through that process over about seven, eight years. We learnt a great deal. What we feel to be a great deal about them, and we gathered a great deal of evidence as well. Not only we've we got footprints, we've got handprints, we've got hair, and we've got dental casts as well from the, some of the food that they had. Where can we see those? Yeah, you can see a lot of those reports on my blog page. It is the Australian Ape Project.blogspot.com. And if you go down to there, you'll see um, some quite a lot of the work we've done. But if you look at, uh, say, there's quite a few articles there, and you can see the photographs that we've got of the dental casts and the hand prints that we've taken, and uh, as I said, also the hair samples. And then, of course, through this process of, of continually feeding them, we used to feed them twice a week, and we discovered what their favourite food was, was through trial and error. We discovered that some of their favourite food, particularly in Australia, was mangoes and sweet corn. And we can only put it together, the fact that they really quite enjoy uh, fruit that is just slightly past ripe, where it's got the highest sugar content, where it starts to slightly ferment. And they find that very, very enjoyable. Well, let's let's subject that find to some peer review right now, scientifically. Bobo, do you like mangoes and sweet corn? Love it. Okay, so I, Ray, I think you're correct because it's a scientific fact that Sasquatches and probably Yowies like everything Bobo likes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a it's a they're great foods, but they find to be very popular. We also learned that they won't eat food on the spot either at a feeding station, like gorilla behavior they'll take the food they'll run off and they'll sit somewhere on their own and then they'll just gobble them all up keeping it to themselves do you find that they go a certain distance away from the feeding station is there any any pattern in that anywhere in a radius of about 100 meters oh okay but no more usually around about the 50 to 100 meter mark in somewhere in around there so if you put out game cameras like on the bait piles and that sort of stuff they just avoid it you have to like not have any electronics right nearby? We've had better luck through physical tracking and just sitting there and uh, glassing with our ultra-long lenses, which are up a hide. We'll throw food all around the, the whole place in trails and we'll just sit and wait. And we'll wait and wait. And the longest I waited is for seven hours for something to happen. But it did. Do you do any sound attractants to try to bring them to the area? Anything of uh, any of the vocalizations or maybe some unusual sounds they've never heard before? Or do you just think that uh, they, they cruise through and they find your stuff? Through the data analysis, we've been able to figure out which paths they take and what areas that they tend to frequent in particular. We also know that they have a home range. We had They have a particular home area. And when that's completely depleted of food based on the seasonal requirements, they'll move to another area. We will use smelling attractants, particularly what I found that works really well is um, we have a fruit. Do you have mandarins in America? Uh-huh. You got mandarins? Yes. Yep. Well, I make a, an attractant out of, out of lots of sugar and mandarin juice, and I boil it up and I make a icky, sticky spray. 
and it goes everywhere. And when you're in the middle of a forest, that just wafts of sugar everywhere through the forest if you've got a good wind, a slight wind. And that found, we found that to be a powerful attractant as well. And if you do any calls, just the ones I mentioned before, we're just like advertisers if we're a female <laughs> and, uh, and try to bring them into us. Does like just driving up in your vehicles, does that announce your presence or do you guys do any tree knocks or yells to let them know you're there or do they just show up on their own? To be honest, you don't need to eat to. They know you're there well before you do anything. They see you before you see them. We also learned that they maintain a line of sight on you. If they see you first, they'll maintain a line of sight on you until they figure out what you are. And if you're of interest, they'll hang around. If not, they'll just take off. And this is day or night. But as I said, what we've also discovered, it would have been easy to sneak up on a couple at times insofar as that we know that their eyesight in broad daylight is not great beyond 30 metres or 30 or 40 metres, that they can see your shape and they can see your colour, but they can't make out what you are until you're close. So if you're careful and you, you're quiet, you can, you can stumble across them sometimes, and we have. Like sleeping? Or you, when you saw, what are they doing when you sneak up on them? Not only me, but quite a few other researchers I know, and even with the big ones or the little ones, when you catch them cold, they act like a tree stump, believe it or not. Like you can't see me, <laughs> you, you know, you can't see me, I'm freeze, I'm a tree, <laughs> you can't see me. Don't believe your lying eyes, I'm not here. Exactly, I'm a tree, I am Groot. <laughs> Um, now, Ray, you mentioned a minute a minute ago the big ones and the little ones, but a lot of people listening to this who may not be familiar with the Australian, you know, lore of the Yowie may not realize that it's very possible, if not likely, that you have two species over there: uh, the Yowie, which is the the, the Sasquatch equivalent, and um, the Brown Jack, um, which is the smaller one. Um, have you had experience with those things? Not directly with the little ones. Um, well, what can you tell us about them? Because in America, most people don't realize that, and I think it'd be really interesting to hear about. Well, there is traditionally two two types here in Australia. There's the big ones, as you did in the grid, called the Yowie or the Duragul or the Quinkin or the whatever, Harry Man, whatever name you want to get. There is for them. There's about seven names. But there's also the small ones, and they tend to top out at four foot. They are four foot tall, and they're called, as you say, brown jacks, or their most, most common name is Junjuddy. And basically, that means little hairy men. Um, we think that possibly is the emergence of a third species over in Western Australia and Northern Territory. And they call them little hairy men as well, but we're thinking they're even possibly as tall as three feet, probably, possibly even pygmy. And, but the thing that throws all this um, up in the air a bit is that there are also reports from far north Queensland of basically seven, eight-foot orangutans. And there's been a few reports from that area as well. So there's two main ones, but possibly three, maybe four. We don't know for sure. We need to do the work and find out. The aboriginals I was with um, were scared to death of the brown jacks, and they they had all kinds of crazy stories about those things being really aggressive. Well... There's been sightings of them really close. I mean, the city I live in has got 2.6 million, and there's been four sightings of them within 25 kilometers of downtown CBD um, in the last four weeks that I know of. And 
one, we've got a photo of, well, we've got access to a photo of, which you can't really see anything except the shape. Uh, as I was telling Cliff, we did a recreation of it and we found that uh, it was certainly four foot tall. It was certainly probably about 100 kilos, so it was four foot and 200 pounds. And um, very quick, very, very fast. But yes, as you're saying, a lot of those stories of the, of the Junjadi or Brown Jacks, they're not a lot of good stories. They're very mischievous. They are very problematic, cause a lot of troubles. And they're very, well, they're very naughty. They'll tease animals. They'll tease horses. They'll tease people. They will steal food. They will steal things. And then they will throw rocks. And, you know, they're just, just very naughty. Well, the, the Aboriginals, they gave them a lot of, like, they were saying that those things were like, like they thought that the Yahweh was physical all the time. They thought that, the brown jacks go in and out of both worlds, spirit world or physical. Again, I think it depends on the relationship that that particular mob has with with the Yowie, with the Yowie groups. Um, there's there's quite a lot of uh, indigenous groups that will, when they're walking through the bush, they will cover their own tracks because they don't want the brown jacks or the junjeries to know where they live or to follow them home. Yeah, right. But there there is a sense to be a universal fear of them amongst a lot of indigenous groups of, of the brown jacks that they that some believe that they also just bring the bad spirits um, with them and will cause you lots and lots of problems. As I said, I think it's a lot more intertwined even in everyday life than what we, we will ever know. Do you know this? You might know this story. I haven't been able to find it ever since, but I remember reading it. The missionary that was in the Cape York in the very north back in the early 1980s came across... And he, what he described sounded more like it wasn't a brown jack. It was like a Homo floresiensis, like a like a relic hominid. It was more in the hominid category, not more like a man, but like little hairy savage men that carried sharp spears, like sharpened point spears. And yeah. he ran into them twice, and he said that the Aboriginals up there would trade with them. They they didn't like me. They were afraid of them. And they were three foot tall. They, they rolled around in like a very violent, very aggressive, very loud pack. And they'd, they'd get shoulder to shoulder and just be jabbing with their spears and like jabbering away and demand. You'd have to give them, you'd have to give them food or something or piece of metal or something. And they'd leave you alone or else they'd keep harassing you. Do you ever read that story? Not that particular one, but there's lots of stories about the little hairy men up in North Queensland. And uh, the, if this third species is is confirmed, uh, that uh, we get enough reports of them, which in Western Australia there's a phenomenal amount of reports, even of the big ones. But these little little ones that are smaller than the Junjuddies or the Brown Jacks, um, yeah, I mean, it could very well be possibly something like a Homo floriensis because that particular part of Australia during the last ice age when it, water levels were a lot lower, I think the closest it was was 200, less than 200 kilometres away from Indonesia where these things were found. So anything's possible because we don't really know what happened back then. We don't really know what went on. And, you know, anything could have happened, but if those things could have survived anyway. So you've got to remember one thing about Australia. Only 50% of it has ever been um, dis- explored and discovered. Half the country hasn't been touched. There's still areas that no person's ever set foot in. And, you know, that being said, anything is possible. Absolutely anything. But, no, they're, they're very ag- hyper-aggressive, and that's certainly the stories we've heard all throughout the place. I'm really hopeful because I know that there's 
a big, you know more about this, but that they got some really good reports of recent Tasmanian tigers. Yeah, thylacines. They're putting out thirteen to fifteen hundred game cameras, like in very strategic locations for a thylacine sitting. I, I was looking on the sightings reports, and there's it's the same areas where there's uh, you know little hominid reports in the same area. So I'm really hopeful that maybe something will pop up on one of those cameras. Here's something that's it's interesting that you might find very interesting. The organization running that uh, game camera uh, project, they actually encourage uh, people, to, uh, sort of like a bit like SETI at home, if you knew what that was, whereas what they will do is that you can monitor one particular camera. So they'll send you all the film for that camera and your job is to go through that camera for that period of week, for that week, and you'll always be monitoring that camera and they'll send you the film. It's, and they've got hundreds of people, you know, quite a, a few dozen people doing it to help out. And that's something that people can do. I don't know the name of the organization that's doing it, but it's not hard to find on Google if you type in Tasmanian Tiger. But that's something that's also very exciting that the general public can get involved in as well. They can only also be part of the hunt for a thylacine for a, something that was thought to be exist, uh, extinct. Yeah, the thylacine is such an interesting topic, too, because we know they're real. They went extinct, I think, in the 20s or 30s, if I remember correctly. Um, and even as recently as this past month, um, footage uh, arose of, but of um, the last one ever in captivity from the 1920s or 30s. Um, so new footage has arisen but of course, there's really good footage from the field as well um, that people have claimed uh, have taken and claimed as a wild thylacine. Um, I, I remember when we were down there. I think Gary Opit, uh, cryptozoologist down in Australia, he had commented to me that he had seen one in the wild as well. Um, there's quite a few strange unknown animals in Australia. What other uh, sort of cryptids have you either investigated or heard credible stories of? I tend to, to specialize in the owies. Um, I'm starting to get into bunyip reports. I'm still trying to talk to people about bunyip reports. Um, the bunyip is supposed to be this uh, water-dwelling, creek-dwelling creature with uh, all the descriptions. You never get a consistent description, but this this beast that devours fish and people that come close to the riverfront. Um, the interesting thing is that these are completely outside of crocodile areas, nowhere near crocodiles, thousands of kilometers away. So you can rule that out. You can. Some of these reports have occurred inland, and it's impossible for some of the seals down in Adelaide and around South Australia to swim up that far. That's impossible. So I'm starting to dig a little bit more into those things as well. I don't do much uh, where I'm based. Is that um, the thylacine work is is too far away from from where we are? And as I said, there's there's in terms of the Yowie research and the investigation, there's just so much work to do. I mean, like I said to you the other day, you know, you, you could do this full time for for your whole life and, and still be finding new places to go every day, um, new sightings, new reports, new places to investigate, new terrain to cover. It's a big place. So I'm just starting to look a little bit more into bunyips and I'm seeing what I can find historically and then what people can tell me and I've got a couple of reports and let's just say they're very different stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo we'll be right back after these messages So, Ray, you've, you've said you've seen these things uh, quite a number of times. You must have a couple really good stories about this event or one of those events. Can you, can you lay a couple of those on for us, please? Probably the, um, the, first, the first encounter. 
um, was the year before the encounter I talked to you about on Finding Bigfoot. Because that one on Finding Bigfoot, I never got to see it. My friends saw it. I never saw it. But the very first encounter was when we were out stargazing at a place called Mount Walker, which is about an hour and a half west of the city I live in, Brisbane. And this was a year before, so this is like 94, 95. And we're out there, and it's on a Sunday night, and it's about, oh, it's about midnight, and there's no moon, and uh, we're sitting out there looking at the stars because the stars are just incredible to see out there. And uh, a little bit of a breeze gets up, and it's like open farmland, and then there's bush at the sides of the farmland, and then there's a bit of a mountain and a hill to behind us, behind us old cemetery. And a bit of the breeze gets up, and it's just smell. It just, it just, it's just this most foulest smell you could ever. It sounded like something was dead. It just smelled completely like something was dead. And what we did was, we, we, I said to my friend, I said, do you smell that? And he goes, yeah, that's terrible. And I went, oh my gosh. And then within a few minutes, we just heard this blood-curdling scream. I wouldn't even call it a howl. It was a scream, and it was close. It wasn't far away. It would have been within within a, within a hundred meters, and it was just the loudest. It echoed, and it. We looked at each other, and we just said, "That can't be a yowie." I mean, we were aware of yowies, but we'd never really looked into it. And then the smell and the stench was ridiculous. And then my friend's son was with us. He was only about fourteen at the time, and he's looking through, he's testing out some night vision gear he's got, and he says, have a look at this. And we're looking at it at the, to the, to the, up the hillside next to us, which was just um, partial green, and you could see cows and you could see the sheep, and it was like rolling hills, like a little roll, not huge rolls, but like, um, like, a, like, a, like a drive-in cinema. You know how that rolled up and down and rolled up and down pretty close together. That's what that sort of terrain was like. And we will never forget, we looked at binoculars, we shined a big, we had a three million candle power torch on us at the time. Uh, sorry, a flashlight or spotlight, I remember <laughs> that, Bobo. I could translate for you, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so we find a flashlight and we're just seeing these probably 50 meters away. We just see these yellowy green eyes that, just huge and we thought what the hell is that and it was on ground level we thought what the hell was that so whatever it was was laying down right and then we saw these eyes rise up and with that thing that's when we saw the shape of this this creature and it was phenomenal and we're shining the torch on it we're seeing it and we said right we're out of here we saw it as we're going so we're throwing all of our telescopes in the back of the car we hop in the car and bang we're gone Record time. Didn't even pack up properly. Just threw it in there. We weren't going to hang around to find out. So that's one of the encounters that we had. Probably the first one. And so you just heard about Yowies at the time, but like that, that that's when it suddenly kind of grabbed you and said, this is what you're going to be doing for the next couple of decades. Well, not at the time. It was after the second one, that the second encounter, that I thought to myself, well, one of these days I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And I'm, to, I'm sure we can solve this mystery using proper investigation techniques. I'm sure we can solve it. 15, 20 years later, still going. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're only halfway there. Well, I, I don't have any more questions. Do you, Cliff? Ray's been very informative. 
Oh no, he, he's a he's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he's smart, articulate. He's trying things scientifically to get to the bottom of things. Yeah, I, I knew Ray was going to be a great guest for us, and plus, he's an old friend now. And got we've known him eight years, and we weren't we don't hang out with him or anything. But uh, it's a long time to have a relationship with a lot of people. So, uh, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the episode, and really appreciate it, and shedding some light on what's going on down under. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you very much for taking the time and taking the interest. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about it. Right on, Ray. We appreciate it. Yeah, that was awesome. Please keep us up to date on anything that you're doing. And what I'll, I'll go ahead and send you Bobo's email address if you don't have it already, so you can keep in contact with him as well. Um, and yeah, and if something uh, if something groundbreaking happens, please reach out. We'd love to hear about it, okay? No problem. Will do. Hey, good to talk to you, Bobs. Yeah, for sure. I'll keep in touch. All right, man. That's cool. Indubitably. <laughs> all right bobs well that's it for today man uh thanks everybody for listening and bobs take us out of here man all right folks yeah once again thanks for tuning in to bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we super appreciate the support and please if you like what you heard hit share tell your friends about it hit like give us some thumbs up and until next week keep it yowie Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 